Today, it's Advent joy. And I'm looking forward to sharing a story from the Old Testament, from our Mission 119 readings. We're reading through the Bible in about two years. We are 50% complete with reading the whole Bible as a church. For those of you who are participating, today we're going to share a story from 2 Kings uh, from this past week. Um, But before I share that, I have been thinking about, as I said, this idea of preparing a way for the Lord. The Bible, you know, that song, Joy to the World, is, is a biblical concept. It says in Hosea, break up your unplowed ground because it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. There's both uh, something you do and something God does. You don't shower anything on yourself, but you do prepare the soil, you prepare the ground. And there's broken places in our ground that we need to break up. And then the seeds that God plants with great liberality will begin to take root and grow in us. So there's this idea of preparation. John the Baptist, before Jesus came, uh, he was Jesus' predecessor, the prophet in the desert, his cousin. Uh, and he said, prepare ye a way for the Lord. That's the old English way of saying it. Prepare the way for the Lord, make a straight path for him. And that means two things I've discovered. One, make a straight path for him in your life. And that's how we read it as individualist people in our society. But number two, make a straight path for him so that other people can hear about him too. Like don't, don't muddy the water for somebody else. So it's kind of a two-part meaning, but it's the same idea. Prepare a place for him. It's a theological concept that appears in the Bible many times. And God is truly, I believe, better than any of us realize. And he gives more than any of us realize. It's a matter of preparing a place in your life for him to come. And uh, they often, I say the phrase, it's not a matter of supply, it's a matter of demand. You can have as much of God in your life as you want. But Rob Reimer says, no more than you're willing to pay for. You have to do the work. You have to break up the unplowed ground. And sometimes, oftentimes, uh, those kinds of changes are what actually hold us back. So we make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to fast and seek the Lord. And then something gets in the way of us doing that. And that's that we don't actually want to change deep, deep down. We have to face these things, right? Um, I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or just my strong desire to tell this story. And I apologize if you've heard this before. There's a story told of a, a couple. Husband was very ill, and, and they didn't know what was wrong with him. So he, he goes into the doctor. They perform all kinds of tests on him, checking his well-being and stuff. And the doctor just keeps making concerned sounds as he reads over the tests and looks at the x-rays. And it just seems very dire, but he says nothing. And he says, I want you to go out to your car and send your wife in. So the man thought to himself, maybe, maybe the doctor thinks it would be better for my wife to give me this news. So he goes out to the car, sends his wife in. And the doctor said, it's actually much worse than we thought. Uh, your husband's in really bad shape. But there is a way for him to survive this. First of all, he is not going to be able to work anymore. He's got to stay at home and he's got to stay in bed all day long. So you're going to have to figure out some kind of side hustle or way to make money from the house. He is going to be unable to participate in any kind of even light house cleaning, cooking, any kind of parenting with the kids. In order for your husband to survive, miss, you're going to have to wake up two hours before him every day and make him a healthy, delicious breakfast and a fresh cup of coffee and bring it to him in bed. Yeah, give him whatever he wants. You know, and then uh, 
all day, same thing, serving him hand and foot. And then, uh, you know, at nighttime when he goes to bed, get, get his favorite bottle of wine, just pour him a big old glass of wine while he sits in bed and watches television. Just, you know, whatever he wants, it's all him. That's how you keep him alive. The wife is just very confused by this and alarmed. She goes out to the car, and her husband says, what did the doctor say? And she said, you're going to die. <laughs> I'm still not sure if that was the Holy Spirit or me. <laughs> but it's an illustration that change requires something of us. If we want to, a, a something, an outcome, like uh, drawing near to the Lord, it will cost us something. Our relationships cost us something. Uh, as we learn around year 10 of marriage, you know, we, we finally figure it out. You know, it's about self-giving love, not about, finally, my needs are being met by somebody else. It's truly, that story, some of you guys were like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> That's not great. <laughs> Just so you know. Change is, is hard. The first, um, as we look at joy... Uh, it's, it's a very interesting concept because much like hope and love, even peace and joy, uh, these concepts we define one way in our culture, but God defines them a different way. And so as we look at these things, we have to realize God thinks of them differently than we do. And we often confuse joy with what? Happiness. You know, we th- when, we're, when we're happy, we, we think, oh, we have joy. But uh, happiness is always stuck to circumstances. Uh, so if your circumstances change, your happiness can go down. You know, so it's kind of one of those things. And we all know this. Happiness is like the best, as good as it gets as a human being, I think. Uh, you can actually, without God, have manufacture happiness in yourself and, and be a happy person. We know lots of happy people that don't know God. But joy is something altogether different from happiness. Uh, joy is something that God does, I believe. And it can turn up in very unexpected places, places where there is no happiness. There can be joy. Writing to the persecuted church, Paul said to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength going through persecution, very unexpected, welling up within God's people, joy. We heard from Pastor Soper last week a testimony, and I, I, I don't recall which historical figure it was, but it was in the first century of the church, and he was anti-church. He was persecuting Christians, watching Christians being put to death for not bowing their knee to Caesar, but bowing their knee to Jesus instead. He's watching them, uh, and he was totally for exterminating all Christians at that time, you know, just within 100 years of Jesus' uh, life and death. And he ended up becoming a Christian himself because he saw how the Christians died. They were worshiping the Lord as they were being killed just for simply following Jesus. And he had never seen anything quite like that. That wasn't, that wasn't tied to circumstances. That was the joy of the Lord in them. Because they knew that they were just moments from seeing someone face to face that they had worshipped uh, their whole lives. Jesus Christ. 
There's a lot of modern stories that are very similar to this. People do, doing amazing things as they are giving their lives to Jesus and the joy of the Lord showing up in very surprising ways. Joy is something that God does in our lives. And it's a sign that Christ has come into your life because it's one of the fruit of his spirit. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness all come into your, your life when you become a Christian. And the more room you make for God, the more joy you're going to get, I think. I love this quote from, from Buchner. He says, Joy is a mystery because it can happen anywhere, anytime, even under the most unpromising circumstances, even in the midst of suffering, with tears in its eyes, even nailed to a cross. In John 15, right before Jesus was betrayed and died for our sins, before his resurrection, he told his disciples in John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. Happiness is man's best attempt at feeling good in life, tied to circumstances. Joy that's from God is from God. It comes in unexpected times, even in times of suffering. It actually says that joy was the motivating force that pushed Jesus to complete his mission on the cross to die for the humanity's sins. It says in Hebrews uh, 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before him, the joy of, believe it or not, it's hard to believe this, the joy of you being part of his people. For that joy of picturing your face and the people around you, he endured the cross, um, scorning its shame. So joy is an interesting force, an interesting power in our life. It's kind of a superpower because it comes from God. And when we get it, we're able to do remarkable things. We can't control joy in our lives, however, like we can often control some degree of our happiness because joy comes from God, who we can't control. That's another, another truth for everyone. We can't control God. But we can create conditions in our lives. We can prepare a place for the Lord. Let every heart prepare him room, a path for God's joy to well up within us by his presence. We're often full of lots of other stuff. And uh, for those of you that have done soul care with us, and Rob talks about the suitcase of your life. He said, you know, the problem is not that God doesn't want to be a part of your life or a very big part of your life. Or he wants to work with these people, these pastors, these missionaries, whoever it is, but not so much you. That's not the problem. The problem is not with God. The problem is your life is so filled with other stuff. Somebody in our church has coined the term gunk. That's an MJ Kowalewski term. Um, your life is just, your soul is gunked up with lots of stuff. That, that, and it just crowds out um, God from being the Lord of your life. So the, the, uh, the trick is to allow God to to walk with God and unpacking that suitcase so that more of him can be in your life. Uh, today we're going to look at a very, uh, a guy that had a lot of stuff in his suitcase. And actually the vision that I had of him, uh, if you've ever filled a water balloon and you're with other people filling water balloons, you know, you're filling it up and you're like, oh, I think I can put a little bit more in. I can do a little bit more than that. Yeah, I can keep going. I can keep going until it explodes, right? It just pops open. And when I, as I read this account in 2 Kings, uh, I really thought to myself, this guy was really full of something. He was full of, in many ways, himself, his own pride and his unwillingness to pay the price for what he wanted at first until he was led through this process. So this is from our, our Mission 119 reading. Uh, 
it's about Nahum and his dealings with the prophet Elijah. Before I read that, um, I, want, I wanted to share a, a passage from John 2, 15 and 16 to kind of illustrate what was inside of this guy's balloon here before God popped it for him. <laughs> it says in John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You're full of something. For everything in the, <laughs> for everything in the world, I heard the chuckle and then I chuckled. You're full of something. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which literally translates to boastful pride from uh, the original language, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So that, that idea of um, the pride of life, boastful pride, it means empty assurance, being assured of how you're doing things. I'm reasonably happy. Uh, I don't really need any help. Uh, Boastful words about your accomplishments is another thing that means. Uh, I was able to do this without any help from someone financially. You know, I I paid my own way, you know? Um, Which trusts in its own power and resources and shamefully despises, violates divine laws and human rights, an impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly, earthly things. If we're not careful, our happiness can turn into that. Uh, pride of life stuff. Uh, a trust in the stability of earthly things until it all sort of falls apart. And uh, you read these things all the time about people on their deathbed and what becomes important to them. Very clarifying for all of us. Uh, some of us are stuck in that pride of life stuff. And uh, earthly things are truly not stable. But there is a assurance that can be found in God. So this guy, though, Nahum, had the pride of life. This guy was top commander underneath the king. So you'll, you'll read about his impressive resume as we look in 2 Kings chapter 5. At this time, I wanted to share about another character, Nahum uh, being the commander of the army of the king of Aram. The other character is Elisha who is Elijah's predecessor and has a double portion of Elijah's spirit and does a lot of miracles that are very astounding, even more so than his master, and also all of that foreshadowing the miracles that Christ would do someday. So here we have Naaman and and Elisha. And Elisha's cool because he's got nothing to prove, baby. I just love the prophets. They they just got nothing to prove. They're like, "This this is what God says? Deal with it. And I just think that's pretty fun. I don't think I'd be a very good prophet. Just too soft. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master. His boss loved him. He's highly regarded by everybody. He's a great worker. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, this is not being written by Naaman. I imagine if, if before what God did in his life when his balloon was full of himself, he would have said, through me, I have given victory to Aram. This is his pride of life stuff, right? But the writer of scripture accurately says the Lord has sovereignly used, used him. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. There's some things you just can't control in life. So this is a, a blanket term for a number of very debilitating um, 
skin diseases, which leads to death, at least at this time. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Everything's going good for Naaman. He has one thing he wants to get taken care of so he can go back to what he does best. So Naaman goes to his master and tells him what the girl from Israel has said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So as a courtesy, he's sending a letter to the king of the area that Naaman is going. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. If you don't know what those numbers mean for the gold and silver, it's a lot. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Not quite accurate. There's lots of presidents and kings that don't read every, everything on their desk. And apparently this, this king didn't quite hear what Naaman said. So when the king of Israel got this letter, he tore his robe and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See, I was trying to pick a quarrel with me. Also characteristic of kings, uh, to think that someone is after them. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. That's cool. That's cool. That's so bad. There is a prophet in Israel. God is on his throne. I am not impressed by your robe-tearing tirade that apparently everyone's heard about. Think about it. Everyone must have heard about him tearing his robe because it got back to, to, to the prophet. Oh, my gosh. It's kind of funny. So the slave girl tells Naaman about the mercy that, that God can give him through this healing, through this prophet. Um, and Naaman is excited to get this taken care of, but it's going to cost him something. Let's take a look at this. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. How do you think that this high-ranking official felt having the servant boy tell him to do something humiliating in a dirty river, no control over the situation, in order to get what he wanted? Think about this. Uh, Naaman has commensurate angst over this. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and his God and wave his magical hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. How many of you just wish God would wave his magical hand over your life? That's pretty good. We all feel that way. Are not Abana and Farfar, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a huff, in rage. He was very slighted by what God was trying to do in his life. And this is where I see the pin of God coming from heaven to this very full water balloon. But the problem is, name's in a corner. Yeah, at this point, he has no choice. There's no other place to get healing. And he knows it. But all this pride of life stuff has just filled him up. And he is just incensed. Elisha didn't come to talk to me personally. He told me to do something hard that's humiliating. And he was telling me I have to go to this river at this time. How dare he command me to do anything? Uh, that's tough stuff. So, 
Let's read on. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Rhetorical question, yes. Something noble. You would have done that. How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? And apparently this was so convincing to Naaman, he's like, yeah, you're right. This is not worth it. I'm going to humble myself. So he goes down and dips himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God told him. His flesh was restored. He became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. And I believe that God is now testing Naaman's newly found humble streak. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Um, this is the religious spirit. People that have pride in their lives uh, want to pay their way. And they, want to th- they think, you know, I earned this. I'm a, I'm a very good employee. We earned the right to have all these things. Um, and while certainly looking at yourself with sober judgment and seeing you're good at something is one thing, but the pride of life that says, you know, I'm the bomb and everything I have I paid for myself with my money that I earned, that's, that's a whole different animal. Um, people are quick to call accurate reflections on oneself pride, which, but that's not true. The Bible says that looking at yourself with sober judgment and saying, I'm good at this, is a fine and wonderful thing. Because you're, you're acknowledging God's built me to light Advent candles, Derek. It's your gift, <laughs> among many other things. You're acknowledging what God has done. It's like a God-centered thing. You can have that's a kind of pride, but it's more like a sober assessment, right? Almost objective. But the other stuff, um, the, the actual pride stuff, they want to pay God for everything they have. I earned it. And not even God can get through that kind of electric fence minefield because uh, he chooses not to. He chooses to respect our will. But this guy, Naaman, God popped that balloon. Uh, let's see if Naaman uh, whacks, um, whacks him in the face, the prophet. No, Naaman says, if you will not take my gift, please let me, your servant, wow, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Really interesting idea. He wants to take the soil from where God did this miracle and build an altar to God and stop worshiping all other gods. This is a man who's giving his life fully to the Lord, making room for God. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down to the other god, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha says, go in peace. I mean, this guy's heart did a, a serious transformation. Think about the joy that welled up into his, his heart when he was healed. One, two, three, four, five, six dips, nothing happened. Number seven, just like God said through the prophet, he comes out healed. And he gives his whole 
life to the God of Israel. And he does an extravagant act of worship, hauling a bunch of dirt (laughs) to remember what God did. How cool is that? That's something that I can really connect with. Um, And he says, thinking through his life, I mean, he was a list plan kind of guy, I think. He says, okay, in my checklist of responsibilities at work, I'm required to be there for the king to lean on when he worships a false god. Is God okay with that if I just kind of stand there while he's doing it? And the prophet says, that's fine. Go for it. (laughs) Which is kind of funny. (laughs) He says, go in peace, really. Um, another, Another great quote from Buchner, the joy of release. Think about that. Think about how it felt to get those test results this week. Think of how it felt, which is a gift from God. Think about how it felt to be reconciled to a father. The joy of release of being suddenly well when before we were sick, of being forgiven when before we were ashamed and afraid, of finding ourselves loved when we thought we were lost and alone. That's joy of the Lord. The question is, how is God looking at you right now? Looking at the balloon of your life? How is God trying to speak to you through your life to make a space for him so that he can get in there and really bring the stuff, the fruit of the Spirit, into your life? You know, what is your suitcase, what is your balloon full of? Can you feel the pressure of that in your life? In what ways have we filled ourselves with the idea that we are, we are right and others are wrong, that we are hurt and others must pay, that we've been unjustly dealt with and that person deserves our judgment? A lot of this is relational. People sit, I mean, I used to sit when I first came to Christ and I would, this is a really interesting and heart-revealing situation. I would get on my knees as an 18-year-old when I first came to Christ and pray to God all night, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And he like, didn't speak to me in the way that I wanted him to, and I took offense to that, really, is what happened. I'm like, I, I gave all this time, why are you not meeting me here? That's a religious spirit, right? And I think that God kind of revealed that in myself. But um, at that time in my life, I didn't have the capacity to hear God's voice through the circumstances of my life. I mean, God is speaking like a megaphone through our relationships, through our work, He is using all kinds of stuff in your life to speak to you and to point out ways that you can make space for him. Uh, Even things that come up that were shared in faith stories. This is is like a loudspeaker of your life. And God is asking you simply, my command is to love and be at peace with all people, not to stuff it. Um... This is what I'm saying to you. This is your life speaking to you. This is me. Let me in. The God of love, the God of hope, the God of joy. The truth is, when we have a problem with other people, I just feel like this is a focus for me today. It's not a problem with them fundamentally. It's a problem with God. We've made a problem with God. We've got to fix that problem relationally with other people needs to happen. It can be a process, but we need to have our hearts pointed in the right direction. Turns out there's only enough room on God's throne for one 
and it is not you. <laughs> not sure who to give that credit to, for that quote to. I'm sure it's been said. So we either willfully empty ourselves and reflect in these kinds of ways, hearing God's voice in our life, or we wait around for the loving God to pop us, like he did for Naaman, which is a little bit more explosive. And there might be, some people may get slimed around you. I don't know. But are we waiting for God to speak to us when he already is, is the question. Through our emotions, through our inner life, through our relationships and situations that we come upon, what was the last thing he told you to do that you just said no to, you know? Maybe it's been a long time. But God is, God is waiting. God has spoken. He's waiting for our answer. So I'm gonna, the worship team is coming forward. And I, I just believe that, you know, a large majority of people here want to have more of God in their lives. Um, and we lack wisdom sometimes on how to do that. But there's probably something very practical that God is saying to you. To, do, to make peace in this area, to receive prayer for this area, to begin a process of reconciliation in this area. And just like with Naaman, once we are fully obedient to what God says to us, not six times, but seven times, dipping in that dirty river, that's when the joy explodes and fills our lives and the Lord can fill us in the ways that he desires to. So the worship team is going to play. And my only instruction will be, sit, let the, let the song wash over you, and ask God what he is asking of you. And know that it's never a question of whether he wants to do it or could do it. It's a question of, are you willing to pay the price for that? And that's what God's looking for from us today. Salvation is free. More of God requires that we make some adjustments. It's just how it is.